gentlemen and uh, how are you this beautiful October day if you're listening to this and it's a different time of day or a different month and I'm sorry but you you probably missed a lot already just so you know just so you know anyway glad you give me a get last time we did a show it was quite niche it was a little bit out there um, we talked about mouth taping and toe spacing two topics that you might not hear on the news every evening or you might not read in uh, very many magazines or uh, online websites of course, every, every website's online, what are we talking about? Anyway, it's not stuff that is, is often discussed. Today we are back with a show that should answer a really common question, especially this time of year, restarting your training after you have been sick. This time of year brings so many coughs, colds, sneezes, uh, chest infections, flus, etc. There's a lot going about at the minute, and uh, there's some things we can do, obviously, to help prevent those, but it's going to maybe happen sooner or later for us. Hopefully, um, we get it all over with soon, and uh, we'll have a nice, healthy winter. That'd be great, wouldn't it? But if you're going back to training after a bout of sickness, this is the episode for you. Maybe you're feeling a little bit under the weather, and you're not sure if you should stop training, if you should rest, or what the best thing to do is. So we're going to help you identify when you should train and when you should rest as well, and uh, get really specific on some details, some details and circumstances regarding training. So. Let's get stuck in. So first of all, should you stop training in the first place? Do you need to take a rest? And uh, this is a really important question because a lot of us tend to stop training maybe whenever we don't need to. We feel maybe a little bit of a a cough coming on or a cold coming on or a a sore throat and uh, we start sneezing and suddenly where our first thought is oh i can't go to the gym i can't train i better not train i better have a rest better not go tonight but what do we do instead we tend to like watch netflix eat some chocolate eat some biscuits drink tea get a takeaway um not sleep probably as well would that be true but we tend to do the the exact opposite of what of, of going to the gym the benefits that we derive from going to the gym now there is a time and a place to not train obviously and uh whenever you're really sick your body will obviously let you know that but I'm talking about things like trivial things so like yeah a little bit of a sore tickly sore throat or something like that a sore throat is kind of annoying you and maybe just a bit of a bit of a cold not a headache not a temperature not a chesty um, chest infection or chest cough those are the things that tend to make mean that you should stay away from the gym that there's something else going on that your your breathing's maybe not right and going to the gym might exacerbate that um exacerbate that especially if you're doing cardio type things um but should you should you lift weights should you do things like that i think you i think it's okay now obviously it's best to listen to your body but i think we need to get over the default of don't train don't go to the gym and um don't use the excuse of, oh, I don't want to give it to anybody else. The chances of you giving it to somebody else are pretty slim to none, to be fair. You've probably given it to all your workmates instead before you've given it to anybody in the gym. But especially in our gym here, because it's so well ventilated, right? And um, yeah, we've got loads of high, high ceilings as well. So the, the, the chances of you 
um, passing it on is very very slender on just maybe sanitize your hands a bit more blow your nose out um, before you go so you're not spitting it all over the place I'm not going to tell you to wear a mask because wearing a mask when you're training is a bit crazy if you ask me but that's my question should you stop training in the first place now if you've got a headache if you've got a temperature if you're feeling really weak achy it's probably the onset of a flu right and a flu means that you're not going to be able to sit up in bed never mind go to the gym so your body will tell you when you shouldn't train but all i'm saying is don't just resort to the default position of i can't go to the gym tonight because very quickly you start making excuses for not training and it's really hard to get back into it again because if you stop training you weren't feeling too bad whenever you're feeling better it's gonna be even harder to get back into the gym because you're not gonna feel that much different than whenever you stop training so it's going to be hard to convince yourself that you're well again, is my point. Before COVID, the old um, saying was, if it's below the neck symptoms, then you should not train. If it's above the neck symptoms, then you should train. Now, I would say the exception to that is obviously like a headache or something like that. If you've got a migraine or you've got something, you know, like a really sore head, that's not fun. If you go to do some training, then that's not cool. I've tried it before sometimes I've done I've tried to do a workout with a headache and it goes one or two ways either it makes it feel a bit, bit better and maybe totally better or it makes it feel way way worse in a really quick quick time so leave it to your discretion but don't stop training unless you have to listen to your body and um, if you are going to stop training do something that's going to benefit you don't just sit up and watch Netflix or don't just um, binge eat or eat junk food, do something that's going to help you, eat more fruit and veg, eat more eat more um, protein, get an early night, get some sleep, do something to reduce your stress, do something to alleviate the symptoms, and uh, yeah, get as much sleep as you can, and obviously stock up on the vitamins and the minerals. So the first couple of questions I have for you are, wh whenever you were sick, how severe was it, how long was it for, um, for example, did you lose your appetite? Have you not been eating well? Um, how's your sleep been? Have you been sleeping okay? Have you gotten more sleep? Things like that are really important. And they're really important at the best of times, but especially if you have been sick. If you've been sick, you're still the same appetite. You've been sick and you've still been able to get plenty of sleep. Then you're going to be able to hit the ground running a lot better than someone who's been sick for a couple of weeks and who's, hasn't been eating anything, lost weight. Um, maybe your sleep's up the left as well. If that's the case, your situation is going to be a bit different. But first of all, say for example you you have um you've lost your appetite. You haven't been eating very well for a couple of weeks, um, say two or three weeks, then you're gonna to have to go back into the gym. You're gonna to have to lower your expectations. You're gonna to have to not regard too much what you were lifting previously. So say you were squatting sixty kilos, just a random number I would suggest that you knock off about 20 or 25 percent of that so about 15 kilos say so take it down to maybe 40 kilo 45 kilos sorry and do that for your first session so say you're doing a set three sets of five do that for your first session and you might feel like you could do more but as I always tell people just because you feel like you could do more your first session back doesn't mean you should because you will be sore. If you haven't done that for a few weeks, you're going to be sore. If you're not conditioned, you haven't been doing it, then you're going to be achy. And what's going to happen then? Two days later, you're going to, it's going to be time for the gym again, and then you're going to be like, 
oh, I'm still sore. I better not go to the gym again. Yeah, maybe I'm still sick. And you maybe even think it's just, you've still got the flu or whatever it was. You might still think you're not well, and you'll not go back for that second session. And consistency is so important. So that's why it's important to get a session under your belt and then go back into it again. Same thing with sleep. Say you're sleep, you haven't sleeping well. Whether it's you know because you're cold, because you're coughing, whatever it was, just you were ill. Then you you again you're gonna have to knock off a bunch of weight. Twenty five percent, um, is probably a good, good idea. If you've been really really sick, if you have both your appetite gone and you haven't been sleeping, you've lost a bunch of weight. You might just have to go in and see how you feel, and remarkably lower your expectations. So if you're just squatting sixty kilos, see how you get on with thirty, see how you get on with forty. But don't go over that 45 kilo mark on the first session would be my advice. The other caveat to all of this is that it depends how long you've been training for. So if you're someone who's been training for several years, probably not listening to this podcast to be honest with you, but if you are someone who's been training for several years and you've built up a significant amount of strength, you've had consistent workouts like two, three, four plus workouts, every week more or less for 50 out of 52 weeks of the year your situation is going to be different from someone who's maybe just done a month okay they've trained for a month and just started and they've stopped for a month stopped for a couple of weeks you can basically go back in where you started and the reason for that is going to be because you are still in the the novice phase you're still in that beginner phase where you're still trying to figure out what your body can do you're still improving technique you're still Finding what your strength capacity is. You haven't fully worked it out. Now you have improved quite a lot in that first month, granted. But you'll you'll be able to go back in pretty much where you started off. Maybe go back in for your, where your first session was. Okay, So say you were just squatting with a barbell. And you got your squat up to... Say you, say you were squatting with a 20 kilo barbell. And you got your squat up to whatever, 40 kilos in the first month. Which isn't dramatic progress. It's kind of normal, but... Say that was what you were able to do. I would suggest starting with empty bar again, seeing how you go, and don't go mental on the first session. That's that's the overarching principle of all this advice: is don't do more, don't do more. Just because you could do more, don't do more, because you're gonna be sore. And as I said, the consistency is what's important. There's no point in you training, go back in on the Monday, train on the Monday, going really heavy, picking up where you left off more or less. Being sore, so sore on the Tuesday and Wednesday that you skip Wednesday session. You try to get back in on Friday. You go for it again and you're still sore. And you make yourself even more sore. That's not going to benefit you in any way. You're better getting starting a little bit lighter. Take a bit more rest if you need to in between sets. Get through the session. See how you react to it. See how you recover from it. And then get back in on the Wednesday and do another session. You're better getting in more sessions basically is what I'm saying even if you start a little bit lighter weight. There's no rush for the rest of your life. There's no rush. So don't overdo it in that first session. That is key. And I can't emphasize that enough. You might think that um, your trainer's holding you back. I've, I've done it before with guys. I've said, like, listen, you've missed a few weeks. We're going to take this back a bit. And you can see the disappointment. They're like, oh, I could, do, I could do more. I could do more. And I know they could do more. I'm sure they could do more. But it's better for them if they don't push it if they don't go too far, because they're going to be, as I said, they're going to be really sore. And soreness is one side of it, but also the psychological side of it as well. It's going to just put you off, because you're going to go, I don't want to go back there and be all sore again. 
But if you can just get through that first one, it's also going to, your body adapts, okay? So if you've been lying in bed for two weeks or you haven't been able to go to the gym for two weeks, guess what's happened to your mobility? Your ankles have gotten stiffer. Your calves have gotten stiffer. Your knees, your hips, your back's a bit tight. Shoulders are probably tightened up as well. There's a lot of moving parts here. So if you're going to be doing anything rigorous or strenuous or anything with a load, weight bearing, it's probably a good idea to make sure that you are not overdoing it in that first one and gradually acclimatizing yourself to it again. You know like oxygen training, right? So people like, if they say you're trying to scale Everest and you go to, up to base camp and you go up to the next camp and back down again, up to the camp and back down again, you do that a couple of times to try and get used to the altitude and get your head around the adjustments and then you eventually go up to the next camp and you stay there for, for a couple of days and then you go back up and down, up and down to the next one. It's kind of the same thing in a one sense, except you're not going up and down, up and down. You're going to keep going up gradually, but you're going to go have to go back down for that first one back, and then you can build it up really quickly. So if you were going up by two and a half kilos every session in your squat, I'm using squat as an example here because it's probably the most important exercise you can do. Say you're going up two and a half kilos every session, every every two days, three times a week, every other day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, then you you would get back up again by sticking five kilos in the bar. Okay, so you say you work your squat up to sixty kilos. Instead of going up two and a half, you're gonna be going up fives. Okay, so you're gonna get that progress back very, very quickly because it's a persistent adaptation. It's not like cardio where if you took two weeks off, your capacity has been shrunk and it's a yes, it's a struggle, it's a fight to get that all back again if you stop running or stop doing whatever for two weeks or three weeks. You'll get it back and you'll get it back quickly, but you need to take it easy on that first session. Got it? Hopefully you've got it. Hopefully you don't hurt yourself. Whenever it comes to cardio and getting back into training after having a bit of sickness, so whether it was a cold, whether it was tummy bug or whatever, a good rule of thumb is probably to take two or three days, just a few days to um, work your way back up to the intensity for every day that you were sick. So say you had a 24-hour bug, just a day, you might not want to try and go straight back into your program or your running intensity. So if you were able to run whatever, six-minute mile, seven-minute mile, you probably don't want to run at that sort of pace right off the bat. As soon as you get back in, you probably want to knock a little bit of intensity off, whatever, 10, 20, 30%, just your first one, and then get back into it again. And the overarching principle, both for cardio and for strength training, when it comes to getting back in after sickness, is to just get the first one over with. Get in. Don't make yourself worse because what can happen is if you if you go in all guns blazing, um, you're likely to feel terrible and then you're you might even think your symptoms are back. You might even think you're sick again. You've had a relapse and that can happen. Relapses can happen. So take it easy the first one. Just feel it out, see how it goes, and then build it up from there. Um, that first one is really really crucial just to kind of figure out what way your body is, how it's feeling, how it's sitting how much energy you've lost, how much cardiovascular capacity, how much strength, all of those sort of things. So it's it's a case of trying to trying to find out about your body again, investigate. Use that first one as an investigation. And then after that, see how you recover and get back into it again and work your way up to that intensity. So for example, if you're out for two weeks, you were sick for two weeks, like fully sick, you probably need to take like a month before you get back up to that um, intensity, at the very, very least, maybe even six weeks, five weeks. So... Depends where you are in the spectrum. If you are a really advanced lifter, 
you're probably not going to lose as much strength as someone who's a novice or an intermediate lifter if you're just you know kind of recreational if you're someone who's super strong like you've got a 200 plus kilo back squat you're probably going to get back into it and be squatting above that again in no time at all whereas someone who is maybe still in the round sort of anywhere between sort of 50 kilos to I don't know, 150 kilos, you're probably going to find it a little bit tougher to get yourself back to exactly where you were. It just might take a little bit longer, but it's all about, it's all individual. It's all, this is all advice and it's all individual. It's all personal. So make sure that you don't um, apply. So someone else, you know, who was sick with the same thing you had, don't do, don't think you can do exactly what they did and recover exactly the same time frame as they did because it doesn't work like that. Our bodies are unique. Everyone's individual and they need to be treated as such. And our first news roundup story is from two days ago and is from the BBC News. The title of it is Respiratory Illness May Take Up Half of NHS Beds This Winter. Up to half of all hospital beds in England could be occupied by patients with respiratory infections, including COVID and flu, NHS England says. The warning came as NHS bosses set out further details of its plans to help the health service cope this winter. This includes rapid response teams to help people who have fallen at home and data war rooms to monitor pressures. The return of normal winter viruses along with COVID Will place huge strain on hospitals, NHS England said. It said the modelling, which has not been published, was very much that's, that's strange, isn't it? It's not hasn't I haven't published it. The love publishing it a couple of years ago, didn't they, for COVID? Took great delight in telling us that 50% of the country was going to die. But anyway, um and it was it was wrong, right? I think I think it was wrong. It wasn't 50%, but um it said the modelling, which has not been published, was very much a worst case scenario. Even during the peak of the pandemic, COVID did not lead to such high levels of beds being occupied. So they're telling us there's going to be more beds occupied this winter. Or can we expect more lockdowns? Can we expect more businesses closing? More uh, livelihoods destroyed? More mental health crushed? Is that is this preempting us for that? Um, NHS Chief Executive Amanda Pritchard said it was important to be prepared. Because the thing is, if they don't shut the country down like they did for the last couple of years, then basically saying that their response was um, over-the-top, authoritarian, despot, miscalculated, if you want to be mild about it, right? That's that's kind of what, what it means. Winter comes hot in the heels of an extremely busy summer, and with the combined impact of flu, COVID, and record NHS staff vacancies, in many ways we are facing more than the threat of a twindemic this year, she said. So it is right that we prepare for it as much as possible. And NHS is going further than it has ever before in anticipation of a busy winter. She said every local area would have data-driven war room where clinicians could monitor pressures at individual hospitals in real time so that ambulances could be diverted to the sites with greatest capacity to treat patients. Yeah, it makes sense, but surely they should have been doing stuff like this um, all the time. Like, it seems, it seems like obvious, does it not? I mean, we've got the data, we've got the technology, combine the two, don't have the don't be treating patients in the back of hospital in the back of ambulances if you can avoid it if there's a capacity elsewhere but yeah it says here it comes on top of the NHS winter plan published in the summer which we'll see an extra 5,000 beds open bringing the total to close to 100,000 as well as 2,500 virtual ward spaces with patient monitored at home so sounds like a fun winter right not but my question in all this that's all like I don't want to share that story just to be doom and gloom about it. I want to I want to put um something I want to put a challenge out if you're listening to this. I want to ask you what what you're doing, what am I doing to prepare for this winter. They're taking preparations to try and get more beds, get more 
capacity available for more illness and unfortunately that's that's what it's looking like but on the bright side there are things we can do we know what helps our immune system we know what helps our immune system function well it's getting sufficient vitamins and minerals it's getting sunlight it's getting fresh air it's it's training it's building strength so that if we do get sick we're going to overcome it easier it's it's we had an expert on a few weeks ago there we had a a, a vitamin d researcher on who was telling us the importance of vitamin d for optimal immune function so that's really important um and then eating your fruit and vegetables, getting protein, getting all of the essential minerals we need, getting plenty of sleep. Sleep has a huge impact, or lack thereof. It's a massive impact on our, our health for all sorts of reasons, but none more so than our immune system. So are we going to prioritize sleep? Are we going to be able to turn Netflix off? This is a challenge to me as much as anybody else, but can I turn Netflix off at 9 or 10 o'clock and go to bed and stop staring at my phone, stop scrolling through, taking in blue light? Are we going to do things like that? Are we going to give ourselves a good shot this winter to stay healthy? And stay fit and stay out of hospital. Um, there haven't been challenges like that put out. We were told over the last couple of years to, um, you know, stay at home, protect the NHS, blah blah blah. All this, these three word propaganda messages being put out. My challenge to you, um, <laughs> which seems to be a lot more reasonable and a lot more logical, is: Are you going to go to sleep? Are you going to get sufficient sleep this this winter? Are you going to train? Are you going to eat well? Are you going to look after your health? Are you going to reduce? your sugar intake are you gonna put down the biscuits put down the cake and have something better drink more water are we gonna do all the basics all the stuff we know we already know we don't need more studies we know so much already and we're not doing it so my challenge to you is are we gonna do it am i gonna do it And next news roundup story is from The Guardian. This is from Tuesday the 18th of October, so a few days ago. And the title of it is Coffee's Ultra-Libertarian Health Stance Risks Lives, Tory Ex-Minister Warns. MP and Dr. Dan Poulter says Health Secretary's ideas of which nanny statism are preventing action on obesity and smoking. I'm a Tory MP, but Tory's coffee is putting ideology above nation's health. Um, now, before we get into it, I don't really care about any political party, any politician. I have no, um, I'm politically homeless, you could say. But um, before we go on, so I'm going to, I don't have a, an axe to grind with the Conservatives. I don't have an axe to grind with um, Labour. Um, I don't like them both equally. So without further ado, people could die because of Therese Coffey's ultra-libertarian ideology, ideological reluctance to crack down on smoking and obesity. A Conservative ex-health minister has warned the strongly worded criticism of the health secretary came from Dr. Dan Poldra, a Tory MP and NHS doctor who served as a health minister in the coalition government from 2012 to 2015. Poldra claims coffee's hostility to what the extreme right call nanny statism. Is that an extreme right thing? Extreme right. Imagine giving directions and telling someone to go extreme right. Um, nanny statism is, hoping, is stopping her from taking firm action against the major killers of tobacco and bad diet. His intervention is an opinion piece for The Guardian. Um, was prompted by coffee making clear that she opposing, opposed banning adults from smoking in cars containing children even though the practice was outlawed in 2015 and is credited with reducing young people's exposure to secondhand smoke. The government's widely anticipated scrapping of measures to curb obesity such as the sugar tax and ditching of the tobacco control plan and health inequalities white paper both of which previous health ministers had promised to publish have led Polder to brand coffee stance deeply alarming. So um it goes on to say here about how she's against the sugar tax and she basically 
wants people to decide for themselves what they should do. Now, I fully agree that people should be responsible for their own health, be that whether the, the choice to smoke or the choice to eat sugary, fatty, unhealthy, in inverted commas, foods. That's a, a personal choice as far as I'm concerned. Although, when it comes to smoking in cars with kids in it, I think that's a form of child abuse personally. So I don't know why you need a new law to outlaw that, but that's just my two cents. Maybe you think that's a bit extreme. Fine, cool, let's chat about it. But um, I, I agree that, that taxing things, taxing things like sugar is a crazy idea for me because, and it's, I've mentioned this before, this idea, but they, they seem to think that taxing things is a deterrent when in actual fact all it does is it means that those who can afford it aren't going to continue to pay for it. Um, it also means that the government is in bed with the businesses which are involved in that industry. So Kellogg's sugary cereals, for example, if you're going to put a sugar tax on things, it is going to be in the government's best interest, the state's best interest, if that, co- if that company succeeds and produces a lot of revenue. Because guess what? They get a big chunk of it. They get some funding from that. So it doesn't really make sense in one in one way, that um, a very big way, that they that this is seen as some sort of deterrent. A deterrent would be to ban it, maybe. Um, but even then, there's a thing called the black market, which has been the most popular market of all um, over the years, down through the centuries. And they, they state some statistics here. They think that they've brought down smoking at the fastest rate for the last 20 years because of all these interventions they've done on banning smoking and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I agree. Banning smoking indoors is a good idea because there's secondhand smoke and that's invading someone's personal space and it's it's harming someone directly harming someone's health. We know that we've got the data on how how hard that is. It's like locking someone in a room and lighting the fire, right, and just letting the fire, um, the smoke from the fire kill them, slowly or quickly, depending on how hot and big the fire is. But it's the same idea, right? It's kind of stupid. It doesn't really take another law. That's kind of. It's, it's assault in some ways, it's grievous bodily harm, whatever technical legal term you want to put on it, but it's not, It's. It, I don't think that there needs to be a specific law around things like that, a nice general one would cover it. Now, they they think that this has brought down smoking, has it brought down smoking, it would be my question, the, the, the reason I ask that is, how are they calculating that? I would imagine they're calculating that on the amount of cigarettes sold, on little surveys and polls, how, how how many people smoke, do you smoke? And it's never going to be widespread enough to get an accurate figure, but also if you are counting the amount of cigarettes sold officially, again, there's a thing called the black market. If you increase the price of something through, through taxation, then there's ways and means for people to get their hands on those things for cheaper rates. So that's why things like bringing cigarettes from abroad, bringing them home from holidays, selling them to your mates, that's why that has become so popular over the years. And I don't know if it actually has fallen. I'd be interested to see. But my question is, are we happy? Like Some people have this, this idea in their head that we need the government to protect our health. And uh, I take a completely different point of view. I think we're each responsible for protecting our own health. If you're a parent, you're responsible for that of yourself and your family and your kids. But whenever they get to 18 or whenever they get to an age where they're culpable and responsible, then... The reins are passed over, right? Hopefully you've, you've instilled some good healthy habits in them. Which begs the question, are we putting healthy habits into our kids? Are we training kids in what we know to be good nutrition? What we know to be 
um, bad nutrition and trying to deter them from that and discourage it and try and encourage the good habits overriding the bad habits? Those are my questions because relying on the government to lift and lay us and to, to wipe our bums and to brush our teeth and da da da. I mean, of all the things, <laughs> this is a really funny one, but of all the things that they're concerned about is the, the fluoride in the water for our teeth. Of all the minerals that we are lacking in our bodies, <laughs> they think it's a good idea to put fluoride in. Like, it's a really strange one, right? Whenever you think of it, like most people are lacking some minerals. Minerals are fairly cheap. We could put those in the water, not much cost. But um, yeah, fluoride is the one that got the vote. Bizarre. Anyway, that's just one example. But back to the topic. I don't really blame Therese Coffee for um. She's probably not even uh, health se- health secretary anymore. She's probably like, she's probably about to walked out the door after oh Lizzie got the got the boot or she resigned. She uh walked out with her head held high. To be fair, like she wasn't even in that long. It was like forty four days. They're all joking that there's a cabbage in the fridge for longer than that. I mean, she didn't really get long enough. I mean, you think of the you think of the stuff Boris did in his his tenure, like the amount of lies he told and the amount of like things he covered up. And uh, this poor doll published a silly budget and she's got the road yeah what are you gonna do but Therese Coffey I don't really like I don't really know much an awful lot about her but I I think she's getting a bit of a hard time here because they're saying she's putting her ideology above the nation's health well ideology does come above most things because out of ideology are lots of outworkings so if we suddenly decide that the government knows best what's best for our health that has a lot of implications if we instead of if we're going to start outsourcing our health care, our medical care, that's a problem. Because there's no way, no way somebody else can know better than you what is best for your health. Yes, you can take advice. Yes, you can take advice from medical experts. But your specific situation, absolutely not. And this is why I'm such a big fan of each of us taking responsibility. Look after yourself. Train. Sleep. Get plenty of sleep. Eat plenty of vegetables. Eat plenty of protein. Build muscle. Get stronger. Get sunlight. Deal with stress. Do all those things. Don't rely on what the government guidelines are for optimal health because you'll not get there. If you're relying on five fruit or veg per day to get you there, uh -uh, it's not going to happen. It's really not. And um, I understand why they put those things in place because they're trying to get people to go from eating zero fruit and veg to eating some fruit and veg. Brilliant. But I think we need to push for a little bit more than that. We need to push for a lot more than that um, personally, in our personal lives. And we can do that through awareness, we can do that through education, but I think banning things, taxing things is not the way to go. People are still going to get their hands on cigarettes if they want to smoke. People are still going to eat fatty junk foods. Um, the other thing is, McDonald's were allowed to operate in the last few years. Um, gyms were closed. Does the government really care about our health? I mean, really? No. <laughs> no is the answer. That's the resounding answer that's coming back. Hopefully I'm not in an echo chamber here, but if you disagree with it, I'd love to hear from you, but thought that was an interesting opinion piece it's not news i would say it's opinion piece this is from by denise campbell health policy editor who's put together a few quotes of people who disagree, disagree with us lady um therese coffee uh, former health secretary i'm going to say now but yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts on that one and our last news roundup story is from SciTech daily com and it's from actually a while ago it's from the 15th of september but the title of it is helping people lose weight deep brain stimulation could treat binge eating disorder a pilot study reveals that an implanted brain stimulator significantly decreased binging episodes and assisted patients in losing weight 
Um, this was the findings of the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Basically, they put a small device uh, that detected food craving-related brain activity in an important brain region, and it reacts by electronically stimulating that region. So it has shown a lot of promise in a pilot trial. So they've only done it in two patients so far. Um, those who maybe have a binge eating disorder, but it's, it's pretty interesting. I wouldn't get too excited yet, but it's kind of interesting. The trial, which was described in the paper published in the journal Nature Medicine, attracted two patients for six months as the implanted device of a kind often used to treat drug-resistant epilepsy, monitor activity in a part of the brain known as the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is involved in pleasure and reward processing and has been linked to addiction. When the device detected nucleus accumbens signals that had previously been shown to predict food cravings, it automatically stimulated that brain region, interrupting the, the craving-related signals. Over the course of six months, the patients reported far fewer binge episodes and lost weight. Wow, that's pretty cool, isn't it? So they're actually they're hopeful that this could treat things like even um, bulimia, but they say here that this is one of the biggest binge eating disorders thought to be the most common eating disorder in the USA. I would say it's the biggest one in the UK as well. I would imagine so. Any wealthy country, I would imagine this is a, a huge problem, affecting at least a few million individuals. It often involves binge eating episodes with the purging of bulimia and is typically linked to obesity. The binging person has a sensation of losing control over eating, therefore he or she continues to eat beyond the point of feeling insatiated. So that would be promising, right? It seems to be a really prevalent thing, but we don't really, um, it's not diagnosed very often and we just kind of laugh it off, right? We just go, oh, I, I, binge, I binge eat all the time. Like, it's nothing, but it obviously has very, very detrimental effects on our health. So it's interesting uh, there's something that's going to be able to affect our brains so that we uh, can gain control over it again. Right, joke of the week time. So my mate David, he had his ID stolen recently. So now I just call him Dav. Okay, here's another one, here's another one. My girlfriend broke up with me whenever she found out that it only had nine toes. Turns out she was lactose intolerant. Just like that, it's the end of another episode. Can you believe it? So, thank you so much for joining me again. Um, hopefully you've learned something here. Hopefully you've gotten something out of this. And all of this is just advice, okay? Disclaimer, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical expert. Believe that or believe it not. I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But take it as it is. It's advice. It's not prescription. And um, it's, it's what works for me, it's what's worked for lots of clients, it's what's worked for a lot of other professionals in the health and fitness industry. So yeah, hopefully you've got some gems there, hopefully you fell off your seat laughing at the joke of the week, two jokes of the week, and um, hopefully there'll be some feedback on and discussion regarding the news 
article round up some interesting ones in there for sure and uh, some that can lead to all sorts of discussions which i am really open to but whatever you're up to have a great weekend if you're getting over sickness i wish you well i hope you're back on uh, form again really really soon um and don't forget to train today so you can be stronger tomorrow i'll catch you next week